It is crucial for pastors to have robust, is there something weird with my mic? I feel like my mic is shrill. I don't know if you can do anything about that. Or maybe turn it down. Testing, testing, testing. Does that sound better? Maybe? Okay. It's crucial for pastors to have a robust, challenging, inspiring, comprehensive plan for how they intend to grow into greater holiness and faithfulness as someone who leads in Jesus' name. So it's crucial for pastors to have a plan on how they're going to grow in holiness and faithfulness as someone who leads in Jesus' name. Just by a show of hands, how many people here would affirm that statement? Just by a show of hands. Crucial for a pastor. Okay. Why? Just looking for feedback. Why would that be important? That I have a comprehensive, challenging, inspiring plan for how I intend to grow in holiness and faithfulness. Okay, so I'm leading the flock. And uh, just expand on that a little bit more, Corinne. Good, excellent. So as a leader, you have a certain level of influence and example. And in a lot of th- places in life, as leadership goes, in terms of whether they're formed towards Christ-likeness or malformed in some other ways, that has all kinds of uh, ramifications that kind of move out from that. Any other reasons why that would be important? To make sure that you're leading the flock in a biblical way, not off Totally good. So make sure my leadership is actually not just aligned, but stays aligned to the priorities of Scripture because it's very easy to just simply lead out of your own worldview or maybe a, a different worldview or, or a, a philosophy of leadership that sounds Christian-ish enough, but it's not necessarily grounded in Scripture. Now let me ask you a second question. Do you think it's crucial for every Christian to have a robust, challenging, inspiring, comprehensive plan for how they intend to grow into greater holiness and faithfulness as someone who's living for Jesus? Put your hands up if you would say, I would also affirm that statement too. Now, I don't think many people said no, but if your answer was no, I would challenge you to ask yourself, what does that reveal about your understanding and your understanding of what it means to be a disciple personally? If you think that that's very, very important for pastoral leaders to uh, make sure they have a plan in place, but for me, or people like me, or Christians like me, what, the stakes aren't as high? Now maybe they aren't as high in terms of influence over this particular group of people, but the stakes are still very high in terms of the influence that you have in your life as it relates to your desire and pursuit of Jesus. Now if you answered yes, which many of you did, could you show your plan to me right now? If we hit the pause button, how many of you could stand up and say, and again, it doesn't have to be anything, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, but you'd at least be able to say, yep, for this season of life or this year or this month or this week, 
this is what I have committed to pursue and this is what my plan looks like. It doesn't, has, doesn't have to necessarily be steps long, but there is a plan in my life. See, if you say it's important to have a plan, but you all at the same time can't produce one, then let me offer some pastoral counsel. And it, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's a warning in one sense, is that it is very, very easy to coast in the Christian life after a certain amount of time and simply coast through intention. I intend to do these things, I want the desires of my heart, but we find other things that interrupt, other distractions that can kind of choke out executing that plan or sitting down with a pencil and paper in the presence of God or sitting down with the Bible and saying, God, what are you calling me to in my life right now? Is there something specific? Or how can I be a blessing to those around me? What does it look like for me to follow Jesus? What are you, what are you putting on my heart, God? Beware of thinking that if you just kind of passively move through your life as a Christian, then you're going to mature, you're gonna grow, you're gonna experience fruitfulness and blessing that you probably want, but much of the time that fruitfulness comes as we participate and cooperate with the Holy Spirit. One of the dominant metaphors that Paul talks to Timothy about in 2 Timothy is he said, you have to understand being a pastor is kind of like being a farmer. You have to have patience patient endurance. You have to do the work, and I think that's a good counsel for every Christian. A farmer doesn't just wake up and kind of move through the day and the seasons, and then when it's harvest time, think, there's no harvest? What? But I'm a farmer. Like, doesn't this harvest just sort of happen? I intended to plant. I know the importance of planting. I can explain to you the cycles of seed to harvest, but if you don't seed the ground, if you don't till it, if you don't participate, then we shouldn't expect when the harvest is very, very meager or if there's no harvest at all. And again, I'm not talking about the harvest of salvation. I'm just talking about the harvest of abundant life that Sharon talked about um, last week, that, that harvest of coming into the fullness of what God has for us. And so to grow in Christ's love, to grow as Christians means to have some kind of a plan beyond just intention of how we're gonna grow. And I don't care what your plan looks like, I use the great commandment of loving God, heart, soul, mind, and strength as a template for how to think about, how to challenge myself to live in response to Jesus' call every month. And I just do a month because a year seems too big, a week seems too short. Your plan doesn't have to look like mine. You can use a different scripture, you can have different themes. It doesn't matter to me, but pastorally what matters to me, my burden would be to challenge you to put some intentions down on paper, to put something in front of you. Maybe, again, it's as simple as a key verse for the month. Um, I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna memorize this section of scripture or this verse, and I'm gonna think about it every day, and I'm gonna live in response as the Holy Spirit brings certain things to my attention, and I'm gonna do it. Your plan doesn't have to be an entirely uh, new, innovative way of following Jesus. It's your way of saying, God, I want to make sure that in 30 years from now, I don't look back and say, well, say oh, I intended to follow Jesus for those 30 years, but just kind of life got in the way. I want to seek first the kingdom of God. So this month, there's actually kind of four books that in different ways have found their way to my desk and my 
I was going to say reading table at night, but I don't read at night. Um, my Kindle. Uh, so Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength. These are different books that I would definitely commend. The excellent. I have not done all of them so far. But a lot of practical wisdom in terms of what it means to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. In the area of relationships, Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. Excellent book on leadership and influence. Um, in the area of soul, The Rest of God by Mark Buchanan. What does it mean to enter into God's rest, to live from a place of rest and refreshment in God? Mind Plugged In, which is a book about how do we engage Christian worldview and how does our Christianity and our Christian faith change whether or not we interact with certain uh, mediums of communication, video games, television, movies, and if we do, how does it change how we interact with those things and how we think about those things? Um, really, really interesting thoughts there and very thought-provoking and challenging. And then in the area of strength, of loving and serving others, um, I finished a few weeks ago, Al Tizan, who's a covenant pastor. Well, he's in charge of uh, missions, uh, kind of a mission umbrella within the covenant. His new book, Whole and Reconciled, about what does it look like in our current context to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to genuinely serve, to be a part of God's mission in the world, and specifically to be a part of God's mission in the world without doing damage to places where we go, to make sure that we're a genuine blessing to the communities that we seek to serve and care for and not simply come with our own agenda and love people on our terms and come with maybe a very narrow and restrictive idea of what Christianity has to look like in these contexts and instead come as servant leaders. And it's an excellent, excellent book that if you read it will really help you to think through what does it look like to love your neighbor well, whether or not you plan to go on a short-term mission trip or uh, you know, eventually transition to be a missionary one day or just stay as a missionary here in Nelson. That is a book that I think would be really, really fruitful for you to read. Okay, I have a file of sermon topics that I kind of slowly add to over time. I kind of teach through series normally. We're going through Ephesians, but then I'll hit the pause button and I use that as a way to kind of fill in the gaps of different one-off messages. And I will be returning to Ephesians in a few weeks, but before I do, I wanted to teach through something that I've been thinking through. It's, well, I guess it started when I came here, but it sort of has been escalating in intensity ever since, and probably over the last year, I've read a lot of articles on that. And that is, specifically as it relates to Nelson, how do we evangelize in a way that is both authentic and effective? And I'm purposely using the word evangelize, which literally means to gospel as a verb, to good news someone, but it's also a word that is a different way of saying to share your faith, to, to talk to other people about Jesus, and to ultimately maybe even invite them to embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But it means to have intentional conversations where you are sharing the basic message of Christianity with those who are unfamiliar with it. And I'm using the word evangelize, even though I don't tend to use that word a lot, but I want to use it this morning because it's a word that has become kind of decreasingly uh, used. You'll hear, you'll hear about it less and less and less. And that's because, at least for people, well, I, I would say probably across our culture in terms of the feel of the word, it is often associated with some kind of artificial, sales, pitchy, forced, agenda-driven process whereby we try and pounce on people or push 
faith on people or corner people in an awkward situation or bring up God or life or faith in conversation, but it's not really in, in conversation. It's like you sneeze and someone says, God bless you, and you're like, oh, do you believe in God? Let's turn to the scriptures. And you're like, they're like, what? You are so weird. So evangelism, and certainly if you've had a long tenure in the church, you've probably been exposed to waves of evangelism training where um, there's been all kinds of different programs that have been been produced, well-intended to say, this is how you do it. These are the steps you can take. This is a process. Here's a method through which you can directly connect with friends and coworkers and family and evangelize them with the gospel. I want people in my life who don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus. I really, really do. And the more people I get to know here in Nelson, whether it's through community events like volunteering, or being a part of a gym or just connecting with parents through schools. My burden for them to come to know Christ and his love and grace and truth, it does, it does build in me. But so does the frustration. Because in case you haven't noticed, Nelson isn't exactly teeming with people who want to know a lot about Jesus or at least through the Christian lens And Nelson isn't exactly teeming with people who are eager to explore the Christian faith. And that's because I I think Nelson is on the vanguard, it's on the front lines of where much of Canadian society is gonna be going over the next five to 15 years. And for better or for worse, it's a challenge. I, I try and see challenges as an opportunity and not a threat. There are challenges that we face here in Nelson that are gonna become more pervasive than everywhere. So what that means is God has entrusted us at this time in history to learn how to do evangelism and sharing our faith well so that maybe as some of these challenges spread to other communities across Canada, they're gonna look to places like Nelson and say, how did you do it? In this changing landscape, how did you learn to share your faith with people who weren't believers, resistant to belief, but do it in a way that was authentic and didn't feel um, agenda-driven and forced and mechanical, but it was effective. You were able to lead people into a living faith in Christ. Today I wanna talk about the three challenges that I think we are facing here in Nelson. This comes out of conversations that I've been a part of, eavesdropping on others, reading articles, again, just kind of compiling a file on this. And I want to then offer a solution, not as a one-size-fits-all, but a path that we can walk that I think, given these challenges, will allow us to share our faith with friends and family and neighbors and coworkers in a way that will, over time, attract people to faith instead of uh, repulse them away. So here are the three challenges. I'm not gonna speak too much on them. I just wanna kind of go over them at a high level. The first challenge is that here in Nelson, we are trying to reach a post-Christian, non-Christian culture. And a post-Christian, non-Christian culture is different than a non-Christian culture. A non-Christian culture is a culture that has had little to no exposure to Christianity. So when you bring Christianity, Almost everything that you're bringing is new. 
It's, there's not really a cultural framework for it. There's an interest, even if it's strange, it's, oh, I've never really been exposed to that before, tell me more. But in a post-Christian context, you're dealing with a culture who, whether it's true or not, the culture overall perceives, we've heard this message before, we kind of did the Christian thing for a while, and now we're moving on to something else. And so Christianity, as a brand, for lack of a better term, is seen as having, maybe sometime in the past 20 years ago, 40 years ago, it kind of peaked as a brand, and now it's kind of, we're moving po- after it, post. So in the cultural memory, there's a sense in which we're sort of familiar with Christianity, we've heard of it, and as a culture, I guess we've experimented with it, but I mean, churches are empty, and I don't know. I think we're just moving on to like, other forms of spiritual but not religious practice. There's not really any social momentum or pressure to embrace Christianity here in Nelson. In fact, there's a lot more resistance. There's lots of social momentum to embrace other forms, and especially non-institutional forms of faith or spirituality, but there's very, there's not a lot of incentive to investigate Christianity if you're non-Christian in our context, and certainly not to think through the ramifications of, oh, if I became a Christian, yeah, like there's all these good things that are gonna happen to me in terms of spiritually, but also that's gonna help me in my life because of X, Y, and Z. The costs are actually starting to outweigh the benefits from a social level. So that's the first one. We're trying to reach a post-Christian, non-Christian culture. The second is, an increasing amount of people in that post-Christian, non-Christian culture, they simply don't carry any anxiety over, well, number one, sin, or that concept, and second, the sense of what's gonna happen to you after you die. A lot of conventional evangelism presumed people understood what you meant when you said sin, you had some kind of a framework for it, that you carried guilt because you were living in transgression to some kind of moral or God-given law, and that you did carry some anxiety around what was gonna happen. Do you have to, do, if, you, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? Would you know you're going to heaven? Do you fear hell? That whole arena of thinking through, of having what I would call a intellectual scaffolding for a concept of sin and a concept of judgment or a concept of even life beyond death is very, very muted. Now again, I'm speaking in generalizations here, but generally speaking, it's very, very muted or non-existent for people in a post-Christian, non-Christian context. They're not asking questions like, where will I go after I die? Or I wonder if God's gonna judge me. Christians need to deal not with just supplying different answers in a context like Nelson, but they need to understand that the people in Nelson who are not believers are asking a very different set of questions. Evangelism that tries to leverage pressure like guilt over sin, heaven and hell, are a non-starter for many, many people here in Nelson. Again, not because many of those things might not be true, but they don't have any, there's no, um, 
There's no Velcro stick to people. You start talking about heaven and hell, or certainly you bring up the topic of the idea of sin, that's a term that most people attach nothing positive to. And they do, don't really have a framework for it in their life. They're just kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of think you do you and do the best you can. And if there is a God, God will understand that. And so some of the conventional starting points of evangelism are a non-starter for people because they don't want to have conversations about these things. Again, I'm speaking in generalities. You can't even assume the scaffolding of a Christian worldview. You'll notice when I teach here, especially out of the Old Testament, I never, I, I think this is true, don't, if you've listened to all my sermons, you can fact check this. I'm very careful to never say things like, you guys know the story of David and Goliath? You guys remember that story in the Old Testament, Second Kings? Because I cannot presume people that I'm talking to have any even basic understanding of what uh, two generations ago would have been basic Sunday school level knowledge of the Bible. N.T. Wright talks about there are places in England where he has been when he served as a bishop in the Anglican church in England and he wore a crucifix and he would have children who were nine and 10 years old come up to him and said, who is the man on your neck? They, they had never seen a crucifix before. They didn't understand what it was. And that's what we're increasingly finding in a post-Christian context. People just don't have a, an imaginative world where faith and scripture and basic ideas of scripture are even in place. There's no kind of building blocks there. And lastly, our culture, and this is a big one that probably everyone's gonna say amen to when they hear this. Our culture, and this is from Timothy Keller and I think it's true, our culture, generally speaking, foregrounds the failures of the church. So the blessings and benefits of Christianity or faith or the church tend to be dismissed or they're minimized or they're ignored or they're simply attributed to something else. But the failings of the church or the perceived failings of Christianity or Christians, again, not that those aren't real, but those tend to get magnified and repeated and reiterated and pushed to the foreground of the conversation, whether it's talk radio, media, or in people's conversations. And so when you are talking to people who are not Christians, you're not starting from a neutral ground where most people, if you said, what's your opinion of Christians? They're likely not going to say, I haven't really thought about it. I don't really have an opinion. They're likely going to lean, unless maybe they're polite, but the, you know, if you get them to be honest, they're probably gonna lean in a more negative direction. I, uh, I don't wanna be associated with the abuses of the church or um, hypocrisy or, or whatever it is. The failures of the church get foregrounded and that means that the association that most people have with Christianity, the church, even me as a pastor, is negative. Even if they don't have any negative experiences, they've picked up a narrative that institutional religion maybe is responsible for all kinds of systemic injustices. And they're kind of like, yeah, that kind of makes sense, okay. So even though they can't point to something in their own life, the failures of the church and of Christians whether they're legitimate failures or not, or they're exaggerated or they're totally true, but those are always foregrounded. 
That's the first thing that we're encountering often in discussions of Christianity and faith with people. And in light of these challenges, there's kind of three ways that you could respond. You could give up. You could just say, man, this is overwhelming. There's such a mess. And uh, I don't know, I'm just happy that I'm saved and I have eternal life and I'm just holding on until Jesus comes back or I go to heaven. And what are you going to do? So you can kind of just have a, a very uh, faithless, not courageous despondency and despair that can set in. That is not a good option. Second option is you can say, kind of maintain the status quo. You can say, yeah, all these factors are in play, but you know what, Jeff? I don't know, you can't please everybody and you just gotta keep doing what we're doing and just keep doing church and keep running the programs that we're running and keep talking the way we're talking and just keep on keeping on and God will save who God is gonna save. And um, yeah. And I think a lot of the times that is, well, I'd be so bold as to say, I think that's a pretty self-centered way of approaching things. I think it's lazy, I think it's unloving. It's not very exciting. And I think what we forget when we allow ourselves, either as an individual or as a church, to say, what is happening is good enough, we don't need to change to accommodate a change in culture or to change, or to accommodate my coworkers or my family or my friends. I think what we forget is the vast majority of us, if you're in this room and you're a Christian, it's because someone in your life 10 years ago, 50 years ago, accommodated to you. They started saying, you know what? There is nothing for youth to do around here. Let's hire a youth pastor and start running youth programs. You know, there is nothing happening over here. Or you know what? Maybe we need to bite the bullet, not sing out of a hymnal for all the songs every Sunday. Maybe we need to create space for a fresh voice to come into play and to be integrated into worship. Maybe we need to change location. Maybe we need to do some things that are different. Not to pander to a change in culture, but to be strategic and to say, if culture has moved to here and people who aren't Christians are now valuing these things, how do we, again, not pander to them like consumers, but how do we meet them? In the same way that if you were going to plant a church and to be a missionary in Argentina, you don't go and say, yeah, this is Argentina, but I'm Canadian, and I'm going to set up a church and a ministry that does things the way I'm used to, and I will expect all the Argentinians to just conform to that. Because I'm glorifying God. I'm doing the right thing. That's fine. So if God wants to save Argentinians, then he'll bring them in. But that's not how we train missionaries. That's not how the scriptures teach us to love our neighbor. We try and build bridges by new forms and expressions of faith that allow people to connect to the gospel in a way that is real and respond in faith. The third choice that we have is missional renewal. That we can allow these realities to shape slowly in a different way, how we have conversations with people, how we care for people, how we reach out to people, how we evangelize, whether or not we'd even use that term, how we share our faith, so that we can become more authentic and effective, not less authentic as Christians and not less effective. Our goal isn't, just to, isn't to have every seat in this church full of people who are just 
here because we've put on Disney World in here or something, or we're having big cash prize giveaways. We can, we can fill this church in all kinds of easy ways. We want people to be in this church because they've come into an encounter with the living Christ. They've yielded their lives to him, and they want to follow Jesus and go on for the rest of their lives learning what it means to follow Jesus. But how do we do that? Well, here is my encouragement to you. I know that many of us are actually already doing what more and more writers, thinkers, missiologists are saying are the key disciplines to effective and authentic influence or evangelism to non-Christians in a post-Christian, non-Christian context. And that is to focus on blessing people. This is an acronym we use in the Covenant Church to highlight practices that we want every individual Christian to be doing, every married couple to be doing, every family to be doing, every church to be doing. But it's of strategic importance, and especially so in contexts like Nelson. So BLESS is an acronym, which means we begin with prayer, we listen with care, we eat together, we serve in love, we share your story. Now let me ask you this question, and I'll invite some interaction. Why are these five practices, given what we just talked about, some of the challenges that we face, why, what's the connection between living into these practices more and more and becoming more effective in, in uh, reaching people who aren't Christians in a post-Christian context? Why is it important to prioritize prayer in a context like ours? Anyone have any ideas why it's important? You can't do it. This is not going to be something. We're no longer in a situation where if we just like um, run a, uh, uh, do a little promotional uh, marketing pitch, if we just change the marketing language, people are going to come, right? There's no one in Nelson who's not in church and connected to faith who's sitting at home and thinking, I would totally become a Christian, but I just, you know, I'm just waiting for that church to just put like a little bit better PowerPoint, just a little, just bring a little bit more creativity. Or if they just started singing these Jesus-loving songs instead of these ones, I would totally come. No one is thinking that. You're not going to attract people to church through worldly means. We've got this. We've got this. You're not going to be able to do it. You could do that maybe even 15 years ago in Nelson. I don't think you can do that anymore. So we need to be praying and asking for God to move in the hearts and to have them deepen an awareness of their need for God and to put a spiritual hunger in their hearts. Yet we can't do it alone. We need to be more reliant on God than ever if we genuinely want non-Christians around us to come into a vital relationship with Jesus. What about listening? Why is that even more important in a post-Christian context? that we listen with care to our non-Christian friends and family. Anyone have any ideas? Yeah, evangelism so often has been, you listen, and I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But listening is a very critical way in which we show someone that they are the focus of our conversation, not my agenda. When I really listen to someone, that's very, very close 
to unconditionally loving someone. I'm giving space for them. And then the really helpful thing is when I listen to them, I might actually learn what those stumbling blocks are to coming to faith. And maybe, maybe that won't happen for a while. Maybe I have to listen to someone over coffee for a long time before they say, you know what, Jeff? I would totally become a Christian except I had this experience. And they're never gonna say that in their first conversation. They might not say it in the 10th. But if I can build up enough trust and really listen to them and show them that I love them, not because they're a project or I'm loving them on condition that they become a Christian, I love them, then over time I can build the trust through listening and then we can get to what is actually standing in the way of them embracing faith. What about eating together? Why is this important? Strategically, as a way to influence people it shows unconditional love. Hospitality, eating together, welcoming, going out to lunch, welcoming people into your home. Again, not with a agenda to you know, direct in an artificial way. Uh, you know, this isn't like a multi-level marketing thing where you invite people in and you're like, oh, I brought you here tonight to have a nice dinner, but also, you know, let's just have a little devotional time after dinner. Not, none of that, nothing forced. Just eating together for the purpose of listening and building relationship and breaking down people's stereotypes, whether it's lived experience or not, people's sense of, well, I know what Christians are like. They are fill in the blank, usually something negative. It's hard to sustain those kind of prejudices when there's at least one person in your life who's modeling something different. Not perfectly, but they're modeling something very different. I used to think all Christians were just total jerks. I don't think all of them are, most of them are, but this person, like I really appreciate my time with them. And I know they care about me and they listen to me. And I know it's not just because I might become a Christian or anything like that, like they just care for me. What about serving in love? Why is that important? Yeah, you're meeting them where, you're, where they're at. You're saying, what do you need? How can I be a blessing to you? You're proving that you're not trying to influence them in a kind of a top-down, condescending, agenda-driven way. You are there for them. And again, just like with listening, you're probably gonna have to really serve for a long time. And they need to see because many people's sense of a strong and passionate, and I'll even throw this word, evangelical Christian, is that they're the ones always pushing faith onto people, but the, I think the perceived sense is that doesn't tend to come with a lot of like genuine care and support. And so Christians in a post-Christian context need to understand they have a different burden to bear where they have to be slow to speak, quick to listen, quick to do good works. What about sharing your story? Why is that place last in the blessed acronym? Let me put it that way. Why is it placed last? Sharing your story, sharing about your faith, sharing about how you became a Christian. Why is it last? Yeah, it's not about you. You want to really understand and show, and, f and again, instead of foregrounding your agenda, you want to foreground your love and care and concern for this person. And then, when the trust is built, might be a month, could be a decade. 
we are ready to give an answer to those who ask, why are you living like this? You know, I've always, I know you go to church every Sunday, but like what actually goes on there? Like I don't really know. It's kind of, it's like a cult thing. Like what, what happens? I've been meaning to read the Bible, but actually I don't even know where to start. Like I've just heard it's really weird and hard to understand. Like where would I even, like do you have a Bible for me or? See, that kind of conversation in a pre, sorry, in a um, non-Christian culture, you could get to that conversation pretty quick. In a post-Christian culture, it takes a lot longer, generally speaking. We've got to be willing to do the work. And I think what's instructive here, and what I've found myself thinking through a lot, is 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 16. And this is where we're going to end. 1 Peter 3 is a letter written by Peter to a group of Christians who are in a very hostile situation. They're in a cultural context where Christianity is not seen as something new and interesting and fresh. It's seen as a threat. It's seen as silly. It's seen as ridiculous. It's seen as those who are weak-minded and weak-willed. There's no social incentive to become a Christian. In fact, if you do, you'll likely face persecution. And not like people will make fun of you, like actual persecution. You'll be cut off from certain economic advantages. You will be belittled. You might even face imprisonment. And he says, finally, all of you, he's speaking to the Christians, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil. Do not repay insult for insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from, from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who's gonna harm you if you're eager to do good? But if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And so God's new strategy for evangelism in a post-Christian resistant culture is kind of twofold. Be a blessing and then be prepared. Be a blessing front end prayer and listening and encouragement and eating together and serving other people and then recognize it might not happen today, it might not happen tomorrow, but at some point someone's going to ask you why you choose to live that way. And when they do, that's not the time to say, oh shucks, you know, I'm just, just trying to be a nice person. That's where you don't lie to them. You're honest. Well, to be honest, it's because I love Jesus and I love you and Jesus has changed my life. And I don't want to force faith on you. I don't think that's right. But if you ever want to talk about that with me, I'd love to have a conversation. But I'm glad you're my friend. I'm glad you're my family. I'm glad you're my coworker, whatever it is. And I just love being a blessing to people. Jesus has blessed me to be a blessing. So that's why I live the way that I do. So as we start our week, two questions. How can you bless a non-Christian around you this week? In your family, workplace, friend circle, someone that you meet randomly, 
in the, in the week, how can you be a blessing to them? Again, not what would be a blessing to you, what would be a blessing to them? And then how can we bless those around us as a church? How do we do that? Small way this week, this Friday at the NDCC, we're covering all the Tooney swims between six and seven o'clock. It's a small gesture. It costs us like 150 bucks. It's pretty meager. But everybody who comes into the NDCC on Friday for a Tooney swim, they're told, oh, the Covenant Church has paid for everything. So you can just go in. That's only $2 per person. But it's a little, little interruption to the narrative that church just wants your money. They're only focused on themselves. Christians are just hypocrites. They only care about their own. It's a little interruption. Is someone going to fall on their knees in the NDCC and give their life to Jesus? Probably not. Awesomely hilarious if it happened. Probably not going to happen, though. But we're not in charge of controlling people coming to faith. That's God's job. Our job is to be a blessing. And then to be prepared if after doing this 10 times, one person phones our church and says, hey, are you the pastor of that church? Why do you do that? Why do you sponsor these things? Why are you going out of your way to serve the community this way? I have to be, be prepared to answer. You have to be prepared for, to answer. If one of your friends goes on Friday night and asks you, aren't you attached to that church? Why, why did your church do that? Because we want to be a blessing. We love God. We believe we're called to be a blessing. And so be a blessing, not out of a vision just to be nice Christians, but to recognize that in the context that we are, it is so strategically important and powerful. And it's the most effective thing that we can do, short, medium, and long-term, to influence people towards Jesus in a way that is both authentic and effective. Let's pray. Jesus, teach us to be a blessing. Help us to reflect on all the ways that you have blessed us, that you have served us, that you lead us, that you seek to influence us, us with gentleness and love and gracious truth, God, and may we mirror that to relationships around us. Give us a heart for the lost in our midst, but also give us deep wisdom to know how to influence and love them in a way that is genuine and that isn't preachy or condescending or paternalistic or forced but that we really do live such good lives among those who are not of faith that they want to understand better the source of that power and hope. Please have mercy on us and help us do that, Jesus. Amen.